2: Hello, and welcome to Slate's Audiobook Club. I'm Megan O'Rourke, a culture critic for Slate Magazine. Joining me today are Troy Patterson, Slate's TV critic. Hello, Troy.
1: Hello, ladies.
2: And Katie a uh, professor at NYU and the author of Uncommon Arrangements, Seven Marriages. Hi. Okay. Hi. So we're going to talk today about Mary Carr's memoir, Not Lit.
1: before we do the ad, we're not.
2: Oh, not before we do the ad. Okay, first we're going to bring you our sponsor.
1: Uh, Which is Audible.com, an awesome place to listen to audiobooks. For instance, on the same device you're listening to right now, I'm told that we're up to 60,000 books on Audible. Surely no shortage of memoirs among them. And you can get a free book even by logging on to www.audiblepodcast.com slash slate. That address. Once again, www.audiblepodcast.com slash slate. And then what were you saying, Megan?
2: I was saying, Troy, that today we will be discussing Mary Carr's memoir, Lit, which has the distinction of being basically the third in a series of memoirs that Mary Carr has written. The the first was The Liars Club, and the second was Cherry. And I bring that up partly because The Liars Club, as, as I think many of our listeners will know or remember, kind of helped really bring about the explosion of memoirs especially kind of memoirs of difficult childhoods that we saw in the 90s and in fact on the I noticed this morning that I was reading um, the bio on the back of the book and it actually says that that's the first line of the bio that the Liars Club kickstarted a memoir revolution where it's not often you see something like that in a bio in a book so so I think you know readers probably come to lit expecting a lot. And um, this is a a recovery memoir, too. It's the story of um, Mary Carr's uh, descent into alcoholism and her emergence from that. And it's also the story of coming to God, a spiritual story. So there's a lot to sink our teeth into here. But first, I'm just wondering, Troy, Katie, what did you make of it? What did you think?
1: I was a bit disappointed. I really wanted to like this book, and I didn't get there. Not only is this the third of her books; it's the longest, and I think the least focused and the most uh, sort of diffuse. There's a lot of stuff to like in the first third of the book, I think, and after that things get a little messy, I, I think, and and all over the place. What I will say, what, what there is to like about it, is the way she sort of works her voices, the way I see it there are kind of uh three registers of language working here right one is literary uh mary carr sort of began her career as a poet and continues to be a poet so the literary language the next is this kind of uh demotic slangy down-home thing that i generally like she's from small-town texas and uh uses a a lot of good vernacular and uh you know there's sort of a pose there um it's a tough talking. Don't mess with Texas girl. That is occasionally problematic, but often a lot of fun. And also taught me the uh, the word "hork" as a synonym for vomit. <laughs> um, and then maybe the third and most problematic register is this kind of therapeutic language that also shades into a kind of religious language. You know, about accepting the higher power and grace, maybe or redemption. It's sort of a conversion. Uh, narrative where she uh, ends up embracing and enjoying life as a Catholic.
2: Yes, which we should come to later on. Yeah, we definitely want to talk about that. Katie? I have to say, first of all, I found the book
0: almost, at certain points, especially toward the beginning, almost impossible to read. It was so disturbing to me. Um, especially there was one scene where she... Has um, She has a little baby boy, and she's drinking and drinking and drinking till she, the world is spinning on her porch, and there's a baby monitor flashing, and she's sort of panicking because she doesn't know how to handle the child. And I found it so disturbing that I almost couldn't actually read the book. However, I also – I think ultimately, as I did push forward – I thought it was a really compelling book. That's just in a whole different category from a lot of recovery memoirs and a lot of memoirs in general. I think um, to say she's responsible for you know every really annoying book about <laughs> someone's eating disorder, it's sort of maybe true. Right. But she's writing. She's just a different caliber of writer. And I guess I was most. I would add to Troy's kind of list of her registers or her voices the the poet, because I think she just has a really gorgeous way of writing. And for me, I was willing to follow her through this journey. I mean, I think she's also a very compelling person, which makes the memoir, you know, her persona, her person is, you know, you'll sort of follow her. But I think that this is a, this is a recovery memoir on a slightly different level. And I think it's um, – I actually think about John Berryman's recovery, hmm. which is his recovery memoir, also the recovery memoir of a poet. Obviously, his recovery was less successful. But I think you feel in her writing the, you know, every word is doing its work. Every sentence is crafted in a way that, to me, belies any, like, possible structural. I mean, maybe it is a little too long, but I didn't, that didn't bother me at all. I just thought it was One, great. Me-
1: One thing I would say uh, about the language is that there are a startling number of sort of beautiful and evocative phrases that sort of capture her mindset mm-hmm. or capture images. I feel like, however, that sort of like one in ten, maybe, of her metaphors or similes falls, and I don't mean like falls flat, but kind of falls on its face, which is, uh, which I found distracting and annoying, and I don't know if that's indicative of sort of a need for a bit more pruning and editing, or maybe it's, it's sort of something more admirable that her sort of willingness to take risk. Or maybe we just the, yeah. she and I just don't get along on that level consistently.
2: Yeah. I should probably say quickly that I know Mary Carr a little bit, so I should make my disclaimer up front. But I'm curious. I am um, curious, Katie. When you say this is a slightly different kind of recovery memoir, could you say more about that? Because I felt that way too, um, but I have been having a hard time putting my finger on it. Is it? Is it? Do you, Is it? What you were just saying that just the language is better, or is there something else going on there also?
0: I think there are two things. One is that she's a very complicated, skeptical, ironic thinker. And so unlike most sort of recovery memoirs, there's a little more um, sort of irony there. And she she's very, I mean, and maybe to the detriment of the narrative sometimes, she's very interested in coolness and being cool. And... In a way, that cuts against the sort of dopey language of recovery. Mm. Um, And I think the tension there is interesting. So, And and with John Berryman or somebody like that, there's the same tension, which is – or if you read, you know, Robert Lowell on writing about being in a mental hospital and she was in the same mental hospital as him in Maclean's. If you read that writing, there's an interesting kind of tension between the poet or the person who's sort of – just sort of accepting this dumb language. Um, and Or fighting against it, struggling against it, but then using it. And I think that's interesting in this memoir. I also think – but I do think fundamentally what I would ask of a memoir is that it has to be as good as a novel, mm-hmm. you know, and that we don't want to read a memoir just to read about somebody's life. You know, and I think we discussed David Carr a long time ago, and I just felt that memoir just wasn't as good as a novel. It wasn't as intelligent. It wasn't as analytical. It didn't go into things in great detail, and it wasn't beautiful, and it didn't have the
2: narrative – Motion of a novel, and I think this one does. Yeah, and Troy, what um, when you said that you felt it started to fall apart? So, what was that for you? Like, is it um, the narrative or the writing, um, or both?
1: Kind of, I think it's yeah. that. W- what happens here? She th- this this book begins with her as uh, like in her late teens as. Uh, a kind of dope smoking hippie hanging out with a cult of dope smoking hippies it's uh, in california, california. Yeah. and then she she quits that after sort of a well written scary hitchhiking episode and decides to go to like college to liberal arts college. Do we know where it is?
2: I was it's, thinking is it mcallister
1: it's, it's somewhere in Minnesota,
2: Minnesota. yeah, and then, she doesn 't name it right
1: there's a bit there's is some sort of hitch where she meets her boyfriend who 's uh, becomes her first husband. For one thing, he's
2: later. She meets him in in after yeah. after college. She's sort of in. She's gone to graduate school, I think, and she meets him at graduate school. Right. Yeah. Okay,
1: yeah. Uh, in any event, I think there's a bit of a problem there in that um, you know eventually they're they're kind of falling out of love and there's there's a tension there and he becomes more withdrawn and withholding and less appealing. But he never seemed that appealing to me in the first place. He was mm-hmm. tall and well read and had you know good looking eyes um, and that was about it,
0: but to be fair she 's writing about narcissism, and one of the comments that I love that one of the other recovery people makes to her at a certain point is like other people are just traffic right. and I feel like for her, other people, including her husband, right. are just traffic right. and when she 's writing about that period, she actually writes about her own vagueness, yeah uh, in terms of other people because she 's right. writing about sort of appearances and this sort of vague love story in the as one does if one is just totally involved in your own drama. right? And I think that one of the interesting things in this memoir is the struggle against that, you know, the sort of desire not to be that person and then looking back over years of life of being that person. And she actually has a lot of notes in parentheses from herself to her former self. You know, I looked at this behavior and I thought, oh, I was so – how could I be so awful,
2: you know? That was one of the things that I thought definitely distinguished it from many other recovery memoirs. It was just that, that sort of – there was a slight – it's like the snake eating its tail. There was a kind of deconstructing as it went along that I really appreciated about the book, but Troy, back that, to what you the, were...
1: The notes to herself, that's a good point. I like those. I think it's somewhat more awkward. Um, there are a number of bits, especially at the beginning, which is sort of a speed bump to get over, where she's directly addressing her son mm-hmm. as if the book is written to him, and I think that's both sort of clumsy in a way in terms of the prose, the, having to say, you know, you remember, Dev, the day that of blah. blah, blah. Um, just the
2: introduction, isn't it?
1: Yeah, but it, it comes back. She has
2: parentheticals now yeah. and then. I actually really thought that was, again, quite interesting because All it. Right. it foregrounded the memoir as a made object for me. And it was like I did stumble over some of them because I wasn't expecting them. They kind of they're a little bit outside of the grammar of the memoir as we know it. But as I thought about what it is, what the action of writing a memoir is and why you're doing it and why this memoir, which is in some ways part of this recovery story, right? The the memoir itself becomes part of the recovery when presumes that there's this kind of other level going on in the writing of it. And so there are these moments addressed to Dev and to her and to Warren, actually, too. But anyway.
1: Right. Uh, in any event, I <laughs> seem to be wheeling around very slowly to what my beef <laughs> is. Uh, and it is that after... Okay, my favorite part of the book is this amazing scene where she's, like, drunk and caring for her son and burning a pot roast mm-hmm. uh, that's at once kind of, like, slapstick hilarious and deeply terrifying. At any rate. but the, And that, I think, is not even her bottom yet. Once she's like, in recovery and in rehab, and then later in um, sort of hospitalizing herself, uh, voluntarily committing herself for depression, it felt quite familiar to me. Even though it's sort of more intelligently written than, you know, 98% of books addressing the similar material, I've heard this one before in a way that I kind of want to skim over it. And so I I started, like, trying to read more quickly— around, say, page 175 or so. And then she forced me, this is something worth talking about, forced me to do this rubbernecking as she begins talking about one of her ex-boyfriends, who is David Foster Wallace. And so, I mean, even if you don't come to, she doesn't use his last name or his middle name, but his name's David, he wears a bandana, etc. cetera. At any rate, that appealed to my prurient interest in a way that, uh, I, I'm not sure that I liked like uh, reading the stories about him throwing coffee tables at her.
2: Hmm.
1: I mean, it's her life; it's part, of, it's an essential part that. of the story. But it's right. it's
2: right. Well, she she. I just read um, the Paris Review interviewed her, and she talks about that this part. So you're right. The kind of literary reader will kind of deduced that this character, who she doesn't name, is David Foster Wallace, because she's talked about dating him elsewhere. And in this Paris Review interview, she talks about the fact that it is him, that she chooses not to use his full name, and that she really agonized because, of course, he sadly committed suicide, I think it was last year, or I think it was two thousand in eight yeah, it was the fall of two thousand and eight um and so she she had been planning to run it this section by him, and then he wasn't alive, so she showed it to several friends and she really in the interview is interesting because she's clearly second guessing that decision to include it but it but she does say something like it is part of her life and part of this time i i mean i I don't know i you know I think if you're a writer and you're a memoirist, you know, your life is your material. And I thought she did do a kind of judicious job of talking about him and writing about him. Of course, one, the reader who's interested in David Foster Wallace, too, will find that there is a kind of there's a voyeuristic element there that enters for for the reader that may be discomforting. But it's interesting what you were saying about, you know, the, the trouble of it's sort of a trouble of the genre, right, that once we've heard the recovery story, how do you distinguish it? And I wonder, Katie, did you have that feeling? Well, yeah. I
0: mean, and I think innately recovery is less interesting than the trouble that came before. I mean, obviously, in in all of these memoirs, I mean, part of what's compelling about Mary Carr is her very crazy childhood with her mother who was truly out of her mind. And the sort of harrowing part is going to be more interesting than when you save your life. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just going to be inherently true. But um, I think she did, as Troy said, I mean, she just did a better, more intelligent job of writing about that recovery and of writing her own resistance to it and how Mm -hmm. sort of, again, she found it kind of uncool and this sort of stubborn skeptical part of her that was rebelling against it at all times and I think she really narrated that resistance as well as you can and I you know I I, pro- I don't think that there is probably a recovery memoir on earth that could solve that problem totally that is to say to make the recovery as interesting as the illness and maybe that's one of the problems with recovery itself or with sobriety itself I mean obviously these people who are incredibly self-destructive narcissistic compelling people charismatic or you know that that story of their destructive destructiveness is is a more interesting story always yeah okay but still
1: maybe the second half of the book could be 50 or 75 pages tighter a notion you were saying
2: well i mean so here's what i liked about the book i mean i think like katie i felt that what i liked about it is the the presence of the poet in this within the genre and just as as katie was saying too and as you were saying troy she's she's Her language is really interesting, and her mind is interesting, I think, in a way that probably a lot of people who write memoirs just don't have as kind of – she's got a very, like, plural way of looking at the world, I think, because – of where she grew up because she was this very imaginative girl who liked to read and was sort of out of place where she grew up because now she's she doesn't come out and really talk about this but you know one of the kind of sub themes is of being out of place in Cambridge where she spends a lot of time and so there's a kind of part of this memoir is also a literary memoir right it's sort of like recovery memoir Mm -hmm. and literary memoir and that's what you were saying before Troy like the beginning is about her you know being in graduate school she's taught by again people she doesn't name but who I think are Robert Haas and Lou Louise Glick and Ellen Bryant Voigt. At, she's taught by all these people who went on to become kind of major <laughs> figures in the in the literary, in the poetic literary world. And she then lives in Cambridge and is sort of teaching an adjunct class at Harvard. And she has to sneak in early to make photocopies, and whereas the tenured professors can make photocopies at any time. And you just, I thought all of that was very powerfully and not self-pityingly. I mean, she talks about her self-pity, but now she's kind of moved to a degree, past it, but it really dramatizes that sense of kind of being two things at once, or being in a place and not of a place. That I think is just makes great drama and makes for great observation. But I thought that uh, I guess I I I do see the recovery memoir problem. But you know, if I were to give someone a memoir about recovery, I feel like this would be probably the memoir that I would give because she does observe what it is like to kind of wrestle with the problem of God, which is something that you brought up at the beginning, Troy, you know, a very hard thing to write about. And yes, maybe the therapeutic language will keep some people out or isn't, you know, the kind of language of the higher power only can do so much. But she's also kind of turning that on its head a little bit and trying to find something within that and past that, Mm -hmm. that was interesting well as
0: I say her own resistance to it being so great yes as great as like any of ours would be if we were in this situation yeah um adds to the sort of I mean I think it makes it seem more honest and more compelling um I mean, another aspect of this memoir, which I, – I, somebody said to me, you know, I, I tried to get it on Kindle, and then I read a few little bit of it, and I was really appalled by the fact that her own mother had been so awful in her childhood, and then here she is doing the same thing to her child. Like, couldn't she learn? You know, wow. why couldn't she figure it out? And they just didn't even want to read the book, this woman. Right. And I felt like, interestingly, that to me was one of the most compelling parts of the book because yeah, yeah, yeah. one of the really interesting things is how determined she is to not be like her mother, to resist the script of her own childhood and how awful it is and how impossible that is for her and how she feels herself turning into this monster that her mother was. Right. And I mean, that in and of itself, I mean, I think it's obviously for most of us um, does not take the kind of extreme contours of this drama but I think it's a really universal problem which yeah. is how do you not turn into your parents how do you not recreate your the ways in which your parents acted in certain ways and you know mean you know
1: right, right. Yeah. Uh,
2: yeah
1: let me quickly read two brief passages two, okay. two very good brief passages that go toward that point. point first I'm here at the bottom of uh, page 108. Uh, Somebody's getting wasted before, (laughs) before Mary Carr's wedding. Drinking to handle the angst of mother's drinking caused by her own angst means our twin dipsomanias face off like a pair of mirrors, one generation offloading misery to the other through dwindling generations, back through history to when humans first fermented grapes. And that seems like a particularly smart and pungent way of talking about, you know, the sort of legacy of alcoholism and then another yeah
2: I loved that passage I'm glad you read that that yeah. was one the th- really th- then got to me
1: another one uh, let's see later mother calls uh, page 130 later mother calls sounding chastened and I scold her and hang up for when she's in no immediate danger of killing herself I get to spill onto her the black bile I feel eventually I get drunk at her again driving to the liquor store for a bottle of Jack Daniels like my poor old daddy used to drink
2: Yeah, those were both great passages, and those those are great that you pulled those out, Troy. Well, and also, I drained the
0: poison that I hope will kill her. Yes yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I, thought I mean, that was that's an amazing really... line in that same passage yeah that I was reading
2: yeah no, and I'm so glad you read this because it sort of formal crystallizes something I've been thinking, which is that she does get it sort of there's like a synesthesia that's not quite the right word, but there's like a confusion in the drinking that she really that's a way she's invented a fresh language that's not the therapeutic language for like that you're continuing the patterns your parents have picked up and she kind of internalizes that language really yeah. really interestingly. I mean, I do agree, Troy, that I think it, the book could be a little bit shorter, you know I think. Yeah. That's partly my taste. I tend toward the spare. The other thing I was just going to say about what I what I really liked about it is, you know, I read memoirs. I remember there was a period in my 20s where I would just, like, read a lot of biographies of writers just because I was like, how do they live their lives? Like, mm-hmm. I was so confused about how to live, like, in a day-to-day way. Like, I just didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. And so I would read people, <laughs> read biographies, and then started reading memoirs. And I do really enjoy the texture of this memoir and and the, the kind of – I mean – I don't know, can we use the word honesty? I mean, that was something I thought a lot of. Was that I do feel that there's something very kind of insistent and probing about her intelligence and her desire to write this story, which comes through in those parentheticals and the deconstruction of the story as she's telling it, the sense that memory— she builds in the sense that memory is fallible. And that really became—it just was very interesting to read about— a woman whose marriage is failing, whose you know, that story was actually in some ways as interesting to me as the alcoholism story. It's totally bound up in the alcoholism story. I kind of wish we'd gotten a little bit more of Warren. I think that... But I think that obviously she couldn't write about him for a host of I reasons. I wanted more of Dev, and I wanted a little more of Dev, and it felt Which like is her son. she, right, who was her son, who felt like they, she was protecting them both in a way that I totally understand, and also that maybe she just didn't remember that much about her, her marriage. But I did just you know the kind of stories, mo- just little moments where she's like, "Am I ever going to go on a date again?" <laughs> These little, you know, threaded through a much more dramatic story of you know nearly dying in a car accident. I appreciated that part of
0: it. I agree. And I mean, I think you're right. Also, I think the best memoirist, somebody like Mary McCarthy, does just what you're talking about, of turning the fierceness of her intelligence on herself. Yeah. You know, and always not just, not just being self-deprecating, but actually critically analyzing yourself. Yeah. In the same way as you're, like, harshly critically analyzing the world and that that balance is what makes it interesting or mesmerizing or, you know, sort of adds to the spectacle here.
2: I mean, I was saying this to you the other day, Katie. I'm reading Virginia Woolf's Moments of Being, which are these scraps of memoirs she started and never completed. And in one of them, she says, I've never written a memoir and I've never liked memoirs because they leave out the problem of the self. They sort of, they coast over the problem of the self altogether, which is that you have a, an I who's describing the world, and we never know who that I really is. And so she sets out to kind of describe herself at the very beginning. But she very quickly sort of sets out, a, she kind of drops it halfway through, and then just because she gets interested in the stories of the people around her. and um,
1: Yeah. Well, let me, toward that point, the, yes. the other book I have in front of me here is a recent book by Ben Yagoda, a Slate contributor, uh, titled Memoir, A History, which is a history of memoir for one thing he would he points out in this book he uh, kind of traces the modern memoir uh, to, to Tobias wolf mm-hmm. um, in his book this boy's alive Tobias wolf also appears in in uh, in lit as uh, sort of Mary Carr's mentor and also it's you know at a dinner that he goes to with him that that she meets the agent who I guess is Binky urban who sort of puts her up to writing her memoir, first memoir. Yeah. And that's near the end of the book. This is something that I would have uh, cut out altogether or handled differently. At some point, you're reading a memoir about writing a different a memoir. memoir.
2: Yeah. No, and, and, and just to add to that, um, I did think that the claim of the Liars Club kickstarted a memoir of was true, but also Toby Wolf's. It was sort of the Back to back of those two books, I think this boy 's life I really did that
1: yeah uh, it was, so just about um, and so this is like a pretty nice history. Ben you go to his, like book about the memoir, and he talks about sort of Puritan conversion narratives and uh, about Rousseau and Romanticism. He makes a pretty good argument that sort of memoirs kind of shaped the kind of the direction of American history at large in terms of sort of uh, you know the first person narratives. My one beef with the book is that he doesn't mention Casanova, weirdly, Mm -hmm. uh, despite going on about Rousseau and Ben Franklin (laughs) and and Ulysses S. Grant. Mm -hmm. At any rate, about Virginia Woolf, here he says, uh, "'Writing about her memories is misleading,' Woolf writes. She says, "'Because the things one does not remember are as important, perhaps they are more important.'" She can bring to the surface her earliest memory, sitting on her mother's lap on a train or bus. But after sketching it out, she stops herself, saying that to try to describe the fullness of that moment would inevitably be to fail. And so on.
2: Yeah. And and that is one of the things that Wolf is interested in as a formal problem is that – so many and and this leads us actually to a discussion of the last section of Carr's book Wolf Wolf is basically asserting that so many of the kind of numinous moments these sort of moments of a great clarity that she remembers as being extremely important that are kind of internal like just a feeling of looking at the sky and the wind when she's very young and this feeling that it gives her are really untranslatable into language and that brings us to the third section of Carr's book because part of this is not only a recovery memoir, but a conversion narrative. Um, and it may not be accidental that a lot of recovery memoirs leave out or sort of skate over the the religious, the, the sort of embracing of the higher power, um, which we all know is part of the 12-step program. And people often kind of say, oh, it was hard to embrace the higher power, and then I, I sort of did it or I found this way of doing it. But Carr really digs into it, and I'm wondering what you made of this section, because I think it is difficult to write about. Religion and spirituality
1: yeah this that's the point that my eyes were glazing over at yeah I will say however that the, what you've given me an opportunity to go on about is despite this um being a book about drinking uh, it's it's in a way it's less about uh, liquids than gases. Mm. Uh, like if you look at the book, then there's there's a lot of smoke, like tobacco and cannabis, hmm. obviously. But her first husband, she's attracted to the fact that he has the scent of the detergent on him. Hmm. And elsewhere, we get the smells of, uh, of honeysuckle and eucalyptus, and
2: yeah, there's a lot
1: of eucalyptus. Uh, and at uh, an oil refinery, the fluorocarbon stench. Um, hmm. And sort of there's a menthol steam vaporizer. Um, there's a nice bit uh, or a nice metaphor. She says, uh, oh, no, I guess it's a simile. A suicide as an idea seeps into your lungs like nerve gas. Hmm. And I think this also rhymes with, you know, in the uh, Spiro, Spirari, Spiratis, right? She's writing about spirituality and aspirations and inspirations. And the, I, I'm—, I'm I, I suppose that she's conscious enough about her language that this is sort of a
2: purposeful.
1: Yeah, that this is a built-in smokiness.
2: That's a wonderful. I didn't even really. I just felt that it was very tactile and sensual. Mm-hmm. The book, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Right. yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't identify that strand. Yeah, yeah.
1: That's for one thing. It's about the spirituality, but it also, right. uh, but it also makes things sort of more animal and.
2: Yeah, which is definitely something you feel her foregrounding is that question of like the body. There's a wonderful passage. Oh, I'm not, not going to be able to find it but there's a wonderful passage and I can't remember who says it to me one of you will remember where someone says to her we're basically trapped in a brain the problem of being human is that we're sort of trapped in this mind and we're like an atomized vessel moving through the world like we, we can't be alive without being encased in flesh and I'm summarizing it in a very banal way but it was a wonderful moment in the book um, that sort of sets up the spiritual stuff that follows but Katie what did you I know what did you think The difficulty she has with the God stuff is that
0: most people are very skeptical about this particular form of religious belief, which she's talking about really like getting on the floor and praying on her knees on the bathroom floor. Right. I mean, she's really talking about a very –
1: Well, when you say most people, you mean (laughs) –
2: Oh, okay. Most most of her readers, most here, people listening to this. right? right. Most right. of her readers. Well, and, and that's most, again one of the ways she's doubled, right? Is that she's sort of this literary liberal who's well, about and she Catholic. herself right. felt that right. way. She herself, I mean, she felt herself
0: that way. had that resistance. Right. She thought the whole thing was ridiculous. She resists the God part more than any other part. Right. And you know, in AA, you don't have to. You don't have to accept such a specific God. I mean, part of the deliberate vagueness of that phrase, higher power, is that it can incorporate all kinds of sort of vague ideas about God, where yeah. she's talking about a very specific idea about, yeah. you know, a kind of very Christian, very specific idea. Yeah. And I think – I mean, I, I was less – you know, I, in the end, I think it, she sort of banked enough sympathy and credibility and, you know, you care about her character and, you know, this is – you want her to come out okay and this is how she comes out okay i you know i found it less you know in certain ways as troy was saying a little less interesting a little less compelling hmm. and it didn't feel to me like something i myself would do or believe but i did you know you sort of wish her well by the end
2: um. There's a yeah. There's a great passage when she's introducing, she calls the chapter where she sort of, she started to believe that she's very, she started to become spiritual, but maybe not religious, we might say, right? She doesn't have an affiliation with an actual church. She starts the chapter where she talks about becoming Catholic. It's called God Shopping, which I thought was <laughs> hilarious and so apt and funny. And she starts it by saying, she starts it with actually a poem by Louise Cluck that I've always loved called The Gift, which is, Which is sort of about how looking at a child makes you want to pray, you know, looking at your own child makes you kind of want to find belief for that child or let the child have belief. And so... The chapter begins, If you told me even a year... This is on page 330. If you told me even a year before I started taking Dev to church regular that I'd wind up whispering my sins in the confessional or on my knees saying the rosary, I would have laughed myself cockeyed. More likely, pastime? Pole dancer. Mm-hmm. International spy. Drug mule. Assassin. Which kind of gives us a flavor of how... What you were talking about before, of, you know, just how she sort of... She resists, right? Yeah, I mean, it's really intense. It's really intense to see... Um, a writer talk about converting to Catholicism, I I kind of, I really have to say, I actually was very interested in this section. I know we were talking before, Katie, I think I was saying I like this section more than you did, partly maybe because I come from a Catholic family and my parents were fallen Catholics, but just that idea of like really glomming onto the rituals and finding something in them, I think partly because it's something I can't quite imagine myself doing, it fascinates me. Because but she, she really has. She it out, really I mean, has, it is yeah. very short, this section. Yeah, and yeah. I think one of the problems with it probably to me
0: as a piece of writing, or maybe to Troy as well, is that she doesn't actually go very far into it. She's yeah. so defensive about how alienating this might be for many of her readers that she actually spends a lot of time, it's very defensive, and she doesn't actually go into it in great depth. I mean, we've just said, you know, the rest, of, there's parts of the toward the end where we feel like the book could have gone faster, the pacing's right. a little yeah. off, but I don't actually think that's true this, of the God stuff. I feel like the God stuff is very sudden, very quick, and it doesn't really, Do you um, think doesn't develop the, I just don't quite understand how she goes from this skeptical person, it, she doesn't quite give it to us, mm. in a way, mm-hmm. that in great detail. To me, that was the problem with it.
1: Right. That's well said. Do you think it's that – you read it as defensiveness. Do you think it could also be uh, sort of that's where she draws the line in terms of Um, self-revelation?
0: It could be. I mean, she draws, by the way, a lot of lines in terms of self-revelation. I mean, it seems like she's writing these books, these like intensely exposing books, and she'll write about anything. But she's actually pretty private here about a lot of things, like we've said, about her marriage about her child, and I think you may be right, that maybe this is like a personal thing that she's actually not going to deliver into clear language.
2: That's very possible. There is also a rhetorical strategy, which I think, frankly, I would have employed too, but which perhaps makes it difficult, which is that because we could call it defensive or we could call it like she's sort of bending over backward to be include to try to include the skeptic which so she'll say things like and by this point i really believe in god not that it's the easter bunny or anything like that there's a lot of kind of qualifying in order i think to try to include um and that's just it's just one of those six of one half dozen of the other strategies because it also if you're it also kind of pulls us out of her belief in a way because she's always in, she's always referring back to us and so it's hard I think to kind of go into her belief as fully as, as we might but uh,
0: and I think in a, in a way the larger dissatisfaction with a lot of recovery memoirs which is true here is that is to me that it's in, in the end it's very hard to accept how someone turns from one thing to another and it's extremely hard to narrate that transformation so we have one half and then we have the other half like suddenly there's a moment where she turns it to, and she she tries, and she does explain it, but somehow it's very hard to connect this believing Catholic person with the person in the beginning of the book in, you know, it just, I don't know, I just feel like
2: in a certain way, it's it's hard right. to make that transition with her. That's interesting. See, I did not feel that at all. I felt like I could make the transition. It's just, like, I could see that this character would go, might, I don't know, because I think one thing I liked about the book was maybe one of the things, Troy, that also makes it long and seem kind of messy, which is that it's not tidally arranged as a narrative. I mean, her mm-hmm. her recover her actual stopping drinking takes so long, and there's so many beginnings which is very and stopping, realistic beginning yeah. and stopping, and you know, kind of narratively. You know, I think if we were making the Hollywood version of this, you know, some studio exec would come and be like, "Oh, just cut this scene out. Just cut this scene out. We want to we kind of need to like stage it more quickly." But that was actually what I kind of liked about it and the same way with the God stuff like she starts to pray but she still hates church she does this but she right. doesn't can't do that you know and and so that seemed believable to me it's just that I do think ultimately you're outside of it because it's a private experience right like the actual belief for me the, I the actual belief wasn't something I could believe too but I didn't I didn't mind that as I've said before but Troy you were going to say something
1: Yeah. What was I going to say? Maybe part of the difficulty here, maybe it sort of speaks towards the sort of the limits of self-examination. Is it possible that uh, a kind of wholehearted religious or spiritual faith necessarily involves uh, sort of a selectiveness about self-consciousness, right? Hmm, Um, To sort of like give Uh yourself over in that way means that there's sort of a part of your emotional experience that is beyond self-analysis.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. And I mean, if I'm you were to about... be the kind of person who could analyze it,
2: you right. might not be the believer, right? Well, and it's really interesting. I'm thinking about like the tradition of the conversion memoir. Now, I'm trying to—I meant to actually like look back at Saint Augustine, and I haven't read that in so long. But like, how much of the time? A lot of that memoir is about his time before the conversion certainly, and I can't remember now how much of it is about. But to actually write about your faith and your belief is um, is a different thing than writing about the pr- the, the turning toward that conversion, mm. that conversion is. And, you know, I'm thinking about books about spirituality and the writer who comes to mind, the contemporary writer who comes to mind most is, well, Annie Dillard. Also Marilyn Robinson writes about, about spirituality, but l- less in a memoiristic way. But Annie Dillard has written kind of memoirs that are really about kind of the presence of God in the world. But they're just about that. It's almost like you can't... She, mm. she doesn't want to knit both things together. So before we wrap this up, does anyone have any final thoughts or passages they'd like to read from this or, or about anything?
1: Uh, what I will do is something yes. uh, that highly amused me. This is sort of a tangent. In the uh, you Go to book, he um, uh, reports that, you know, someone once approached Sigmund Freud about writing his memoirs. Uh, This is what he quotes Freud writing back. That is, of course, an impossible suggestion, a psychologically complete and honest confession of my life would require so much indiscretion about family, friends, and enemies, most of them still alive, that it is simply out of the question. What makes all autobiographies worthless is, after all, their mendacity. Uh, And I think there, when he means mendacity, you know, we have egos that need to be protected and scores that need to be settled or not uh, but what really amused me here was uh, it's a footnote of Yagoda's Freud added incidentally it is American naivete on the part of your publisher to expect a hitherto decent person to commit so base a deed for $5,000 for me the temptation might begin at a hundred times that sum but even then it would be turned down after half an hour <laughs>
2: that's very funny. Uh, that's great um yeah Katie, did you have anything? Else?
0: I, I feel like we should end on that note <laughs> but um but i really i i, I feel like um i just want to I just think this is a really even though we have talked about the structural messiness slightly, I think this is a book that you can really sit down and read, and it's really a kind of amazing uh kind of interesting, beautifully written book um, about this subject and and kind of it is in a different category. Um, than most memoirs that we pick up.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I really felt completely drawn into this world and and the world of this mind working itself out during a period of life that isn't written about necessarily that often and sort of and, and written about from a kind of entire perspective about what it is to be a young woman who also wants to be a writer who also wants to have a marriage and and is also struggling with alcoholism. And I thought all of that made it just a really unusual book that I would definitely recommend to people. Um, and just so many moments of language that I was impressed by, and also moments of the mind interrogating itself that I was really, I think I'll return to and puzzle over.
1: I will say that in the course of this discussion, you two have elevated my opinion of the book. Not not wholly. I think that there's still it's still got some significant problems, but... you've,
2: good, that's good. That's what a book club is for. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We will be uh, re-adjourning soon to discuss Don DeLillo's White Noise. It's the 25th anniversary of that book, so please join us for that. And um, for Slate.com, I want to thank Katie Roife and Troy Patterson for joining me. I am Megan O'Rourke. Join us next time.